If you're here this morning for the first time visiting with us, we want to welcome you and make you especially to be welcomed in our assembly. We are concluding a short series that we've had uh, the last, this is the third of a three-week series that we've entitled, In the Presence of God. And for the past two weeks, we have surveyed the revelation of God from creation through the giving of the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. And then we reviewed God's call to his people who had strayed from his commands for them to repent, return to him through the voices of the prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, it was assumed that I would be covering all 27 books this week of the New Testament. I hate to disappoint you, that's not going to happen. Uh, but this week, we are going to conclude this series by focusing on a pivotal event. And I, mark, I might argue the pivotal event in all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And that is the transfiguration of Jesus. And I'll explain why I believe that's the pivotal event in just a moment. But before we launch into this morning's lessons, I want you to look at a short video that I will reference later as an illustration in a small way about what we are to study. So if we could show that video right now. Usually they're just white like this one, but this one here has turned dark, which means the caterpillar is just about ready to come out. Here is one that has hatched. Look how tiny it is. They've done so much growing. Isn't that amazing? A tiny larva develops into a caterpillar and goes through a not so glamorous stage of gestation to finally emerge as a beautiful, wonderful monarch butterfly. Now keep that process of development in your mind as we go to the scriptures. And I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go to Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. You know, the word theology means the study of God. We have whole colleges and universities devoted to theology. We have men and women who have the name or the title given to them as theologians, basically studying the concept of God and what that means. Now, I'm not a theologian, except... I study God, and I think you do too. Let's study some more about God this morning. Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now we believe that this is Mount Tabor. It's not named, but we believe this is most likely mountain. And the scripture says, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, Luke in his gospel, Luke the physician, records this same event in his gospel at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, and we won't read that now. But the one additional detail that Luke provides is that the disciples were quite sleepy until the transfiguration began. And I don't know what it is about these three guys, but they seem to get very sleepy a lot. We'll see in a second. Now, why do I say that this is a pivotal moment in Scripture? On the surface, it sounds like three of Jesus' 12 disciples had been dining in magic mushrooms and that their connection with reality had somehow momentarily been severed. But in point of fact, and very much beyond their understanding at the time, they were among the very few throughout man's history who had been permitted into the very presence of the Almighty and visibly witness His presence. And it's important to see the context for this event. I think context is everything when we study the scriptures. But to see the context, we need to understand that Jesus has recently outright revealed to the twelve that he is the promised Messiah. All of Israel was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And finally, Jesus revealed to the twelve, I'm the one that's been prophesied about. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who was to come. And he also revealed to them that he would go to Jerusalem very shortly and that he would be condemned by the Jewish leaders, condemned to death. And then, because they couldn't legally put anybody to death, he would be handed over to the Roman authorities who would abuse him, torture him, spit on him, and then execute him as if he were a criminal. And two of the three privileged to witness this, James, the brother of John, and his brother John, had recently, to the consternation of the others on the group, asked to hold seats of honor at Jesus' right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. Of course, that angers ten who are wanting places of honor. And Jesus tells them it's not his to give. But James would become a leader of the church in Jerusalem in its first years and become the first of the apostles to be martyred as the church expanded. John is believed to be the last of the apostles to die and the only one to die a natural death. 
And he wrote five of our books in the New Testament, including the gospel that bears his name, and also the book of Revelation that was written while he was in exile in the Isle of Patmos, a book that is filled with a lot of symbolism. And a lot of people, I think, were coming today to hear me give my view of what Revelation really means. And I'm sorry to send you away disappointed. The third, Peter, would inaugurate the kingdom with a whale of a sermon in Jerusalem on the first Pentecost after Jesus' death. And the result of that was that 3,000 were baptized that day. At least 3,000. There were probably more than that, but it says 3,000 men. And it would be these same three that Jesus would bring closer to him when he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night, his night of betrayal. And, and although they fell asleep while Jesus agonized and sweat drops as if it was great drops of blood, uh, these three with their flaws, their weaknesses, were especially chosen to witness this pivotal event and to be in the presence of God. And next we notice what happened to the appearance of Jesus. The scripture says that he was transfigured. Now if we go back to the Greek New Testament, the New Testament was written in what is called Koine Greek, which was, uh, Koine means common, the common Greek. The Greek word used that was translated transfigured in this passage is the word metamorphothe, from which we get the word metamorphosis. It literally means he was changed in form. So just as we observed a moment ago how a caterpillar goes from that larva to a... Well, actually, caterpillars are kind of attractive in my view, but they're nothing compared to what they end up as, as those beautiful butterflies. We see in this passage that Jesus appeared in a way that totally dumbfounded the three men. His face shone like the sun... It would be difficult to continue to gaze upon him. A couple of months ago, I went to see my optometrist and had my eyes examined, and I had my eyes dilated. I'm, I know many of you have had the same experience. Now, what do you want when you get your eyes dilated? Well, besides a good nap, I want a good cloudy day. If you walk out of that doctor's office without those little shades they give you to wear out and the sun's out, that is painful. And I speculate that something similar happened to these men as they experienced what they saw when Jesus was transfigured. His face shone like the sun. And the scripture also says his clothes became white as the light. The spectacular appearance was unlike anything these men had ever seen. And then the scene becomes even more dramatic. There with Jesus appeared Moses. Moses that we have talked about in previous weeks who had walked the earth some 13 to 1400 years before that event and led the Israelites out of Egypt to what would be known as Israel. And also appearing with Moses was Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history who had done his work about 900 years before that event. And the apostles observed them talking with Jesus. Now, two things immediately come to my mind when I think about that. First of all, how did these men recognize it was Moses? Did he look like Charlton Heston? <laughs> how could they have known what Elijah looked like? 
Maybe they had name tags on that said, hello, my name is Moses. Or hello, my name is Elijah. Highly doubtful. But somehow, the men knew who they were seeing. And the second thing that I think about is, wouldn't you like to know what was said between Joses, uh, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? It just says they talked between themselves. I would like to know, what, was the, what were they discussing? Were they talking about how Notre Dame played the day before? Was Jesus saying, they've taken my picture off of the Hesburgh Library and put Sam Hartman's up there? <laughs> Whatever it was, Peter, James, and John were witnessing the meeting of the law and the prophets with the Messiah. And by faith this morning, we are talking about this event as a fact. We are trusting the witness of those who have passed their experience down to us. As a matter of fact, a few years later, as Peter was writing the second of his letters that have survived to be included in our New Testament, I believe he is making an allusion to what he saw when he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. I, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. I believe Peter was referencing his eyewitness of this event to establish his credentials to be a spokesman for the Messiah. But we don't know what was said. We just know that these two prominent Old Testament luminaries had a conversation with Jesus on this mountain about a week before his crucifixion in Jerusalem. The lawgiver and the most prominent of the prophets who themselves had had the unique experience of being in the direct presence of God. Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai, we are told in the scriptures, had to have his face covered as God passed by because no man could look at the face of God and live. And just being in the presence of God caused Moses' face to shine so much so that he had to put a veil over it when he appeared before his fellow Israelites. But he was talked to by God. He was in the presence of God, and we're told that he was conversed with by God as with a friend. Not many have had that experience. And when years passed, when Moses is 120 years old, and the scriptures tell us that his eye was not dimmed, and he was still physically strong, 120 years. I can tell you at 74 years, I'm not as strong as I was at 24 years. But when he was 120 years old, his work on earth was done. But before he died, God led him to a mountaintop and gave him a panoramic view of the promised land. And you have to wonder, what, what would have gone through Moses' mind as he surveyed all of that? This is what I have led the people to. This was my calling by God. And then when it was time to breathe his last, no man was there to bury Moses, but God himself prepared his burial site. And we don't know to this day where he was buried. Elijah, a fiery personality, was the epitome of a powerful prophet prophet 
And you remember, as we read in the Old Testament, how he had a contest with the prophets of the earth god Baal. And there were 450 of them, only one Elijah, 450 prophets of Baal. And they had this contest. And uh, he wanted God to humiliate the prophets of Baal by showing them who the true deity was. And so they were to call on their God to rain down fire from heaven and consume their sacrifices. And it went on all day long. They eventually were cutting themselves and doing all sorts of ritualistic things, making fools of themselves, and no fire came down. But then Elijah, you remember, he went beyond that, and he had trenches dug around his offering and then had it covered with water again and again and again until those trenches filled up. And then he called upon God who sent down fire and consumed it. And those 450 prophets of Baal all died that day. God was vindicated through his great prophet Elijah. But then Elijah gets depressed like we often do, we prophets. <laughs> and those of us not so profitable. And he went out in the wilderness and thought he was only the only one left. And God had to remind him he still had 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to those false gods. And he spoke to him another time, but it wasn't in the whirlwind. It wasn't in some dramatic way. The Bible says God spoke to him in that still, small voice. And then when it was time for Elijah to leave this earth, it was God who provided an exit with a fiery chariot and horses to carry him home. Not a burial plot this time. And as heroic and imposing as Moses and Elijah were, it was Jesus who was the headliner in this event. And impetuous Peter, not knowing what to make of what he was witnessing, offers the best he could in response. He says, Lord, let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he put those two on equal footing with Jesus. And it's that time that the bright cloud comes down and overwhelms them. And out of this cloud comes this voice the voice of God, the presence of God became known to them. And he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so powerful was this voice that all three of the men fell on their faces in terror. Until Jesus, now appearing alone and back in his original appearance, tapped them and calmed them and told them not to be afraid. And he added, don't mention this to anyone until after I've been raised from the dead. From there, they headed to Jerusalem for the events that not only changed history, but is the reason why we are gathered here together this morning in worship. And so, as we consider the theme of this series, In the Presence of God, I've been thinking about how varied our conceptions of God are. The picture that Lowell showed last week and that he expertly cropped uh, of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in which Michelangelo depicts God as a muscular grandpa reclining in the clouds. We rely on the statement of Genesis 127 often, which says, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so we think, well, God walks around like we do. God looks like us. As a result, we have anthropomorphized God 
in our image. We tend to think of him as a superhuman with our physical characteristics going more powerful. And throughout the ages, man has wanted a physical being to worship. As we have seen, even while Moses was receiving the command from God to not make any graven images to call God, while he was getting that, the Israelites were down in the valley fashioning gold calves to fall down and worship. They wanted something physical. I suggest to you that we have very little knowledge of the God that we worship. The scripture says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands, in Psalm 19.1. All of the complex systems that are studied by men and women, whom we designate as scientists, are, according to our beliefs, the work of a single divine being. Our most brilliant people are simply scratching the bare surface of what the Lord, without our earthly limitations, has created. How can anyone think it is more reasonable that such complex systems have happened spontaneously and then evolved beneficially through time to culminate finally in Homo erectus, the upright man, and ultimately to modern man? And what are we to make of how God must regard man? A century ago, it was believed that there were about 2 billion people on earth. When I was at school in the late 50s and early 60s, it was estimated that the earth's population was a little over 3 billion. In 2021, it was estimated that the population of planet earth was 7.888 billion people. So my question is, how focused is God on this one microscopic speck of dirt called Chuck Barrington when he can be concerned about all of those others, my brothers and sisters, who are currently occupying the planet? My God, in my mind, is too small. A man by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a book with that title, Your God is Too Small, a few years back. Or is my conception of a being unlimited by time or space so influenced by my own limitations that I have a hard time letting God be God? Wouldn't we be the first to be overwhelmed by the majesty and glory of our Creator? The psalmist says as much in Psalm chapter 8, beginning with the first verse. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all of the flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so when I read that, I realize I'm not the first to wrestle with this question about how can a God so large and so powerful be distant and yet close by. Be unhinged and unbound by time and space so that 
when I have a request to make of him, he will hear me. There's a couple. The first marriage, not, it wasn't the first, it was the second marriage ceremony I ever performed right here in this auditorium uh, 47 years ago. And they live down in Nashville now, but the only reason I've been able to keep in contact with them is by Facebook, one of the great evils that Satan has invented. And uh, in the last week, their cat was ill, and she has requested prayers for her cat. Her cat became ill because she was accidentally poisoned by her. But I thought to myself when I first heard that, are you kidding me? You think you want God to be concerned about your cat who has nine lives anyway? <laughs> and she gives daily updates of the recovery. And Lily is improving. And I've, at first I dismissed that and thought, well, that, that's so trivial. Why would. Well, my oldest cat this week has become very ill. And so I. I've fallen into the same routine of praying to God. When you pray to a God who is so large and so overwhelming that we can only hear his voice on very rare occasions in human history, and he can't be seen face to face, we can only have expectations. But we have a God who is also not only creative, and powerful, he's personal. And he hears our requests. The writer of the book of Hebrews quotes from this passage in Psalms and then relates it to Jesus with these words in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's this Jesus who was transfigured on the mount, that pivotal moment where he had walked for oh, about three years among humanity. God's only begotten son comes down and walks by humanity and sees what it is that we face, the temptations we face, tempted in all ways such as we are, yet without sin. It is this Jesus who then redeemed us by being crucified on a Roman cross is this Jesus who was transfigured on the mountain before Peter, James, and John, who conversed with Moses and Elijah, and in whom we by faith believe to be the one who brought the presence of God down to earth and who walked among weak and sinful humanity so that he might be our advocate, having known what we walked through, so that he might be our advocate with that same God. And it is in him whom we trust and who is the foundation stone of the faith that brings us together this morning and that we celebrate this, season, this morning. It is this Jesus that we believe brings us into the presence of the great I Am. It is this Jesus 
who gives us a hope that there is more to come for us. And Peter described it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with the first four. And this should be very familiar to us here. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a stone, chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Someday, I, you knew this was coming. Someday I'll breathe my last breath. Someday this body will stop functioning. Some of it has already. But someday it will totally stop functioning and begin to decompose and return to the elements from which it was created. But I have this faith that as that caterpillar was transfigured into a monarch butterfly, as Jesus was transfigured into a bright and stunning appearance, that God will transfigure me and you into an existence that I cannot begin to fully comprehend. And that is my faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Someday we will see. Will you bow with me in prayer? Holy God, our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for that experience that Peter, James, and John had on that mountaintop so long ago, that you allowed them not only to see your son transfigured, Father, but to observe Moses and Elijah and to hear your voice coming through the clouds. And I pray, Father, that you will bless us as we contemplate what took place there and help us to understand how, Father, that is a foretaste of what is to come. Father, you are our God. We are your people. We want you to make us a holy nation for you. Help us to be your presence in this community, that we as living stones follow that which is our cornerstone of our faith, your son Jesus. And it's his name that we offer this prayer of thanksgiving. Amen.